because I do want to be reverent as we realize that returning to God is a universal Christian experience. It requires taking stock of our position with God and refocusing our thoughts on Him and upon godly things. As we turn again this morning to the book of Jonah, where we find the account of the prophet and his journey to bring a message of repentance to the Ninevites who belonged to the Assyrian Empire, I find myself needing to be reminded of a basic fundamental truth about our God. And perhaps this is something that will help us all to realize how applicable this Old Testament text is to our lives today. Namely, that thing is the principle that I find my, namely, the principle that I find myself needing to be reminded of is the immutable nature of God. Now, I'm sure someone is thinking this doesn't bode well for the message this morning. The preacher has already used a word that seems to be very specific to those who call themselves theologians. But I assure you, this is not the case. God's immutability is a reference to his unchanging nature. The reason I say immutable instead of just unchanging is there is a second definition that is applicable to God. Not only is he unchanging, that is true, but also he is unable to change. There's an inability in his ability to change, and reason can help us to understand God's immutability then. He is perfect. By definition, God is perfect. Therefore, he cannot change for the better because he is complete perfection. Likewise, he cannot change for the worse because that would make him imperfect. Therefore, God not only is unable to change, but he does not need to change because he is perfect in design. The reason I think this is important for us to take stock of or grab hold of it this morning as we look at the book of Jonah is all too often, I believe, Christians neglect the fact that the same God of the Old Testament is the God of the church today. The same God that sends a storm in pursuit of Jonah running away in rebellion is the same God who chases after backslidden Christians who need to be drawn into his truth. The same God that appoints a great fish to swallow up Jonah is the same God in the business of calling the lost to him. Scripture affirms this. The preacher of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 13, 8, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi 3, 6 confirms, For I, the Lord, do not change. What this means for us is that the same God who is pursuing Jonah is the same God who is pursuing us. We need to take stock then that we can return to God, that we can run to God because he is already pursuing us. That we would do just that is our prayer this morning. Some of you are here this morning and have been burdened by God in some particular area. Perhaps God has laid a need for you to follow him in obedience And perhaps you, like Jonah, have been on the run. God's leading has guided you somewhere, and you have rebelled. We've all experienced just that in our lives. Some of us, perhaps even, are experiencing the waves crashing over us, the billows breaking around us, and that may be God pursuing you. This morning, I want to leave you with six steps that come directly from our text in Jonah chapter 2. Six steps to run 
to God, to return to Him, and to follow Him in obedience. With that said, let's pray as we prepare to read God's Word. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Lord, open our hearts that we might be able to behold the awesome truth found in your law. Make us humble and receptible that we would be able to respond. God, help us to know your truth. Guide us where we do not know and help us to follow you as would glorify you. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray. Amen. Open your Bibles then this morning, if you haven't already, to Jonah chapter 2. I'll begin reading in chapter 1, verse 17, the last verse of chapter 1, and we'll read the whole chapter, chapter 2. The Bible says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me, and then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple." The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head, and the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The first step in our return to God, we said in chapter 1 we find Jonah running from God. Um, Instead of going to Nineveh where he was called to serve, he goes the opposite direction. And I said that we don't know with absolute certainty where Tarshish is last week. But I did find one commentator who appeared to have some idea. And he made note that the distance that Jonah was traveling, not only was it in the opposite direction, but the journey would have taken him more of a year's time. I thought it was interesting because it goes to show, if this commentator is correct on where it's at, and I've I have no reason to doubt that, other than I don't know with any certainty myself. Jonah had no intentions of returning to the presence of the Lord. He was running away, and still, we find in verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish. Stop there and realize that the storm that had been sent to uh, burden the sailors that caused panic among the ship when Jonah found himself sleeping below deck was sent by the Lord, and now a fish has been sent by the Lord for the purpose of rescuing Jonah as he descended into the deep. The first step, then, in returning to God is to realize that God is pursuing you. Verse 17 tells us that this fish was sent to swallow up Jonah. It was appointed by God. God is in the business of pursuing. God's sovereignty is in the business of pursuing the lost. Luke 19 verse 10 tells us that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is God's business. He has not abandoned His creation, but He is in pursuit after those He has called to His name. 
I hope it needs no mention to point out the parallel between Jonah's three days and three nights in the fish and Christ's own three days and three nights in the tomb. The purpose of God in creation, in the creation story, through the struggle and the strife and everything that we read about in the Bible is God pursuing the lost. Not only the lost, but the saved who are rebelling against Him. I began this morning by saying that it is a universal Christian experience to have to return to running to God. I wonder if anyone would like to argue otherwise. I don't think there's anyone that could say they've never found themselves in a position where they have strayed so far away from God that they have not needed not just to repent, but to run with fervent zeal back to God, to feel His presence. You may be in a position like Jonah this morning. You may be experiencing the chastening hand that is intended to draw us closer to him, that forces us to return to him. And in that situation, I pray that you will realize that the same God that you need to return to is already in pursuit of you. This should be an encouragement. It seems... And, and we'll see this later as we look at, at Jonah's response from the belly of the fish. But it can seem while we're under chastening or while we're experiencing discipline that God is pushing us further away. But this would be the wrong perspective to take when the Bible clearly affirms for us that God is already pursuing us. I've said in, 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 as an evangelistic principle and as, especially for um, just the concept of, of missions, that in many cases, people will not change until the pain of changing is less than the pain of not, until the pain of not changing is less than the pain of changing. What that simply means is that it requires burden. Sometimes it requires to give things up. We read in the Gospels, Jesus calls the disciples to give up family to run to Him. To give up um, the things that they've identified with, even their possessions, so that they can follow Him wholeheartedly. The call to be a Christian, we say that it's free, but it costs us everything, doesn't it? It should. It should come with sacrifice. It cost us relenting, relinquishing control of our own lives to give lordship to Christ. Well, that's why Christians run away. This is the struggle in the Christian walk that I have given lordship over to Christ. I've relinquished my own will and volition in my life. And then I've gone and I've grabbed it off the altar so that I could take control again. I've told you all before in my personal walk, I see this regularly as I try to maintain control and order in my own life rather than simply observing that God is in control of all things. And admittedly, normally in those circumstances when I'm grabbing for more control, over God's own sovereignty, it's in fact in rebellion of sin in my own life that I'm unwilling to repent of. Because I see circumstances spinning out of control, tempest being sent across the sea and the ocean that I might be afraid of what's going on, that financial burdens scare me and they make me vulnerable. I don't know that I can provide the way that I'm supposed to provide. I don't know that I'm able to worship the way that I'm worshiped, all because of a rebellious state. And then I realize that my chastening, that my discipline, those, these things that come from God are there for my own edification. 
They're there for my own benefit, that it's God pursuing me. And I realize that it would be much more painful to stay in a state of rebellion where God continues to have need to rebel, uh, to discipline me, when instead all he calls me to do is repent and run back to him. In realizing that it is much less painful to simply repent, to humble myself, to realize I'm not as big and powerful as I'd like to think that I am, and instead admit that God is perfectly sovereign, perfectly in control of all situations, appointing even a fish to swallow up Jonah. I realize the first step to finding our way to God is realizing that He's already pursuing me. Now, many of us have a picture of a whale being the fish to swallow up Jonah. I do want to point out that the text makes no definite definition of what this fish is. And for that matter, God could have certainly appointed a clownfish if it was his will to swallow up Jonah. God is sovereign and complete control and powerful over all things. The second step. Not only do we need to realize that God will, is in pursuit of us, but we should recognize that we are helpless without Him. In the first four verses, just read what chapter 2 says. Jonah prays to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Consider Jonah's emotional and spiritual state. In the first four verses, he calls out to God out of his distress, and he gives us a picture of what it was like inside of the fish. Do you know what Sheol is? It's another word for hell. He describes his position inside wherever he is at as hell. He even paints a picture of what it might have been like in the innards of the fish in um. Verse 5 telling us that weeds wrapped around his head. In my mind, I picture this as whatever's going on inside of the fish, perhaps uh, plankton or whatever else, are crashing over him. This is a disgusting picture. Just before this, Jonah was resigned, sleeping in the bottom of a boat, knowing that God was pursuing him and knowing that he did not have control. And in that... What does he do? But he relinquishes himself and his own um, physical well-being to the other sailors on the ship that they may not be destroyed. He says, throw me overboard and surely God will stop the storm. Sure, they try to fight it at first, but eventually they, they have no choice. They throw him overboard and the sea stops. Do you think Jonah knew that God was going to send a fish? I don't think that would have crossed my mind at all. When he says, throw me overboard, I think Jonah says, let me die. Perhaps even he passed out. There's a couple of fears that I have about dying. I do not fear death because I know where I'm headed. But there are a couple things I don't want to experience. I do not want to die by drowning or burning. Those are basically the big two. 
my, my biggest fear is not being able to use my lungs. And Jonah sinks. This isn't a bass that jumps up as soon as he hits the top of the water and grabs hold of him. He's descending. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. His emotional state is one in which he observes God casting him away, even though if we look back at chapter 1, very clearly he says he was moving away from the presence of the Lord, not once, but twice. But in his distress, he calls out, observing himself as cast away from the Lord. This is why I said that the first step in realizing the first step in running to God is to realize that he is pursuing us because we often have the perspective while we're under discipline that we are being pushed further away. But it helps Jonah to see the second step, to realize that he is helpless without God. Let's be clear, this is written from the perspective of Jonah. It's very autobiographical. We don't know what happened, but most likely I would speculate that this great fish did not consume Jonah from the top of the water, that he was sinking down. And I'm sure he thought he was going to die. When he was rescued, God answers him, and he describes his plight in the belly of the fish like that of hell, separated from God. This undoubtedly is the lowest point Jonah had ever been. I don't know if you caught the joke, but it's because he's below sea level. But also emotionally, physically, he's experiencing distress. Spiritually, he feels cast away from God. I'm reminded of Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? We're unable to run away from a God who is everywhere. All at once pursuing everyone. Pursuing the lost to seek them and to save them. God will allow brokenness to enter into your life. I have no doubt about it. But my friends and loved one, I do seek to help you to realize that he does this for your own good. He will allow brokenness to be a part of your life that you might be prompted to return to him and to run to him, realizing that you are not in control of everything that goes on in your life. Brokenness is an encouragement, something we should be thankful for because it helps us to realize that we are not all powerful, but God is. That he is in pursuit of us and that we need him. The end of verse 4 ends, Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. And this is the third step to running to God. That we would refocus our attention on God and on godly things. Surely in a state of rebellion, this is not the case. But I want you to realize as we look at chapter 2, it's very poetic. It echoes the Psalms in an amazing way. In fact, it even directly quotes, it would seem, from Psalm 42, speaking of the waves crashing over us. Remember Psalm 42, which we studied only a few short months ago? Your billows passed over me, and yet I will seek the Lord. 
Jonah immediately turns to prayer, and it gives us some idea what prayer actually is, because this doesn't come from a place of simply deciding that I'm going to pray now, but it comes from a place of being in God's Word and knowing it well enough that when the time comes, it pours out of our spirit in communion with God. In Jonah's distress, realizing that he's not in control, his mind is focused upon God because what else is there to focus on? The weeds around his head? The depths that he has reached? The air that he's unable to breathe? Or is he more focused on what God is doing. William still writes that there is nothing vague or amorphous about how the Christian approaches God in prayer. We approach God believing that he is there and that he is the God who responds. This becomes such a positive and creative, so positive and creative that it lifts our spirits far beyond any doubt or depression or pessimistic attitudes. One of the things that such an attitude of prayer does is to free our minds from the narrowness of thinking that of God as simply the supplier of needs. We are being affected by our conversations and discussions with Him. One of the most remarkable things about prayer is that it changes the way that you view God. Much has been said about the correct posture of prayer, but I believe our attitude is much more important, and certainly that is what Jonah demonstrates for us in chapter 2 here. It's in his distress that his heart is able to come to God. Vulnerability set aside, burdens out in the open, everything presented to God with no veil, The little lies that we use to deceive those around us to tell them that everything is all right go away when we approach God, realizing that he already knows everything that is in our heart, our unbelief, our distress, our doubts. And when we go to him as openly as Jonah does here, this is the genuine mark of prayer. I found something a few months ago I'd like to read to you all, if you don't mind. And realizing that you have no choice in the matter, I'll go ahead and read it. The proper way for man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keyes, the only proper attitude is down upon the knees. No, I should say the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms with rapt and upturned eyes. Oh no, 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 said Elder Snow, such posture is too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. It seems to me his hand should be austerely clasped in front, with both thumbs pointing to the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. Last year I fell in Hodgkin's well, head first, said Cyrus Brown, with both my heels a-sticking up, my head a-pointing down. And I done right then and there, best prayer I ever said, the prayingest prayer I ever prayed, a-standing on my head. There's no doubt that Christians experience distress like the rest of the world. We do not preach a prosperity gospel because we don't find it in the Bible. We submit to the gospel and everything that it says, even to the revelation of God and His nature, as unchanging, as perfect, as loving, as just. Everything about Him expounds our life that when we go to Him, we are able to open ourselves up wholly. But how many Christians neglect this? 
Surely, in a state of rebellion, when you are running away from God, your condition is such that you do not find yourself humbly opening up. How could you? You're unrepentant. God is disciplining you because you would rather make your own way. The fourth step is to rely upon God to rescue us from despair. Luke chapter 12, verse 5, Jesus reminds us, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, but after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed you, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. There is only one who has authority to judge who goes into hell and who goes to heaven. Our fear should be righteous. Not only should we refocus our mind upon God and godly things, turning to God's word, turning to genuine prayer, turning to um, genuine worship and meditation upon God's word, that we'd be refocused, not just God, but also godly things, Philippians 4.8. Focusing our mind on things that are honorable, that are worthy of praise, things that glorify God and setting aside those that do not. We should have a reverence as we rely upon God to rescue us from our despair. I want to note something. This is written from, I said it's autobiographical. And for that reason, the application has to be very Christian. An unregenerate person is not going to understand this the way that they should. If you've never experienced God's presence, you won't know what you're missing when you live life without it. But for those of us who know the glory of being in a right relationship with God, what it's like when we walk with Him, what it feels like when we're speaking to a stranger and we feel His presence guiding us to ask open-ended questions and giving us the ability to listen and to focus, to care for and to nurture, to regard suffering from His holy perspective, we know exactly what we are missing. Once you've known communion... You understand what banishment is like. Verse 6 in our text reminds us that God has through covenant and promise assured us that he will rescue us from anxiety and despair. Jonah prays, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So far, we've covered four steps for running to God, realizing that he is pursuing us, recognizing that we are in a helpless state without him, refocusing ourselves upon God and godly things. And our fourth step, relying upon God to rescue us from despair. God is in the business of rescuing. There is nothing else that we have to turn to that will redeem us or rescue us or take us from a place where we no longer have to experience such anguish. 
But when our minds focus completely and wholly upon Him, when we're able to embrace everything that He has offered us, when we're able to realize that we are in a state of rebellion, humble ourselves and set our pride to the side, when we're able to repent, when we're able to worship Him openly with all pretenses set aside, He is glorified, not just in our lives, but in our redemption. Our fifth step, remember that the Lord, remember the Lord with thanksgiving. Verse seven, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Verse nine, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. It may seem strange to those of us that haven't been walking the Christian walk for a great amount of time, but the Bible tells us that we are not just to rejoice when everything is going well, but surely we are to rejoice even in our suffering and trials because we know that suffering produces character, which produces endurance, which produces faith. It helps us to grow in strength in, the, in our Christian walk. It helps us to realize that God is in complete control. It protects us and prevents us from wandering astray like Jonah, that we might come to Him more consistently, that these principles to running to God would be an incorporated part of our life. And how easy is it, especially when we have been saved, to no longer come to Him with thanksgiving? My friends, I tell you that if you cannot thank God for disciplining you, you will have great difficulty in thanking Him when you have been rescued. Of the ten lepers that Jesus healed during His earthly ministry, I only find one who is grateful enough to return. It's so easy to fail and to give thanks when we have been rescued. Jonah turns his attention to remembering the helplessness of those who feverishly tried to appease their false gods and idols, saying that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah remembers that he has the privilege of worshiping the one true God, the one who created the sea and the dry land both, and that that privilege comes with knowing the one who is able to rescue him. Is it really possible to be thankful when you are submerged in the depths, the lowest point of your life, in a spiritual condition, in an emotional condition, and perhaps even in a physical condition? Absolutely, when we know the one that we are paying thanks to. Because it purifies us. Because it makes us holy. Loved ones, God is much more interested in your holiness than He is your happiness. Be thankful when He makes you holy. One of our hymns that we sing from time to time, you all know it, Love Lifted Me, echoes Jonah so well. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. We have so much to be thankful for. In our redemption and in salvation, there is so much that we have to pray. We can be so thankful in our suffering and our anguish because we do not fear He who is able to kill the body and then do nothing else. But our fear is of the Lord, the one who, after He has killed the body, has the ability to condemn us to hell. 
Such fear is righteous. It glorifies God, but it does not cast down our heart or our spirit. It lifts us up and encourages us. This is the nature of prayer. I said that it has the ability to create in us an attitude of genuine worship. Prayer is not filled with words. It's filled with heart. Finally, the last step. Respond in obedience to what God has called you to do. Loved ones, I painted a picture, I hope, of the reality that the picture of Jonah is not so far-fetched from the way that we live our lives today. In fact, I think it's very rooted to the backsliding Christian who has accepted the trivial matters of life and corruption and and even um, weakened their own testimony by the way that they live their life who's experiencing discipline from God and doesn't know what to do with it, who feels discipline and runs further away from God because they think that they are being cast away. Our call this morning is to run to God despite our disobedience. If God's called you to something, if He's told you to go somewhere, if He's told you to do something, if He's told you to stop doing something, He will continue to discipline you to the point of brokenness. As a matter of fact, as your pastor, I lovingly tell you that this is my prayer, that God will pursue you and break you of your sin. Sounds very loving, doesn't it? But it's the truth. Those of you that have taken up idols, those of you that have worshipped in false ways, those of you that have neglected Bible study, those of you who neglect prayer, those of you who live a life that does not glorify God in the complete sense, I pray in an imprecatory prayer that God will pursue you fervently, that He will break you and bring you to brokenness, that He will lift you up again from that, that you would glorify Him, that you would be encouraged by that brokenness to know that God loves you enough to discipline you. Fathers, isn't this what we do to our children? When we discipline them, do we do it because it brings us great joy? Or do we do it because we love them? Oh, I love Bubba so much. My second born. Someone said the second is is a little bit harder than the first. I think that's true for Michelle and I. Charlotte was so obedient in everything. She so quickly she picked up on if mama or papa tells you to do something, she does it immediately. And Bubba has an amazing rebellious temperament. I don't know if he's just headstrong or stubborn, but he will be disciplined and go back to doing what he's doing. And I have to tell you that as a father, it breaks my heart. I don't even want to be consistent. Because I decide at that point, I actually don't care that much about this. I'm tired of spanking you. I'm tired of saying stop. I made a mountain out of a molehill. I'm going to let you do this. But I can't do that. From a place of love, I know I can't do that because I've already said something. I have to be consistent. It's from a place of love that I go back to him and I spank him for the fourth time or the fifth time. And they might get a little bit weaker over time. But by golly, they happen. When God disciplines us, He does it for our own benefit, for our own love. We're all just as stubborn as Bubba. 
And, the, and our stubbornness really doesn't come from, in some instances, a place of, well, I guess it does come from a place of pride. Maybe what I mean to say is that it doesn't come from a place of rebellion, but it comes from a place of thinking that we're in control after all. That if I can continue just pushing this boundary a little bit further, eventually I'll get away with it. Eventually, God will continue to bless me even though I'm doing what I want because God's will will eventually change and He will agree with me. God doesn't change. His will doesn't change. If He's chastening you for something, if you're being disciplined for something, the same thing that He called you to a month ago, a year ago, five years ago, whatever you're running away from, is the same thing He wants you to do today. He wants you to respond in the same way. Whatever God called you to in the past that you ran away from, He is still calling you to now. Whether that's salvation and knowing Him, placing your faith in Him, surrendering your life to Him, whether that is simply in the Christian walk, surrendering yourself to Him, giving sacrificially, making sure that the church is your priority, realizing that the community of God's people is more important than anything else in this world, that you're called here for a purpose, that He's left you here for a reason, that the people in our community will see Jesus through the way that you live your life. And that is imperative. It should burden you. It should make you want to sacrifice everything for God. It should burden you to the point that you want to throw away all false idols, that you want to purify your life of sin, that you want to have a despair whenever you see sin on the television or on the radio, when you read trash, that you should fill yourself with God. Realizing that He's pursuing you, recognizing that you're helpless without Him, Focusing yourself upon God and godly things, relying upon God to rescue you from despair and responding to what he has called you to respond to. God is sovereign. He spoke to the fish and many of us feel that we are trying to find our way back to God. My friends, I hope this message has been applicable to you and that you would remember that you are being pursued. That you would repent of your pride and recognize that you are helpless without God. That you would commit yourself to spend time with God and in His Word. That you would surrender, trying to fix all of your problems and give them to Him. That you would give God thanks for all things and count it joy. That when God makes His will clear to you, that you will respond in obedience. Father in heaven, I've come to you now asking that you would be glorified, that we would take the message of your word to heart and that we would have clarity about how to apply it. Lord, your will has been made known to us, but we, with hard and rebellious hearts, refuse to see what you want in our lives. God, I know you have a will for us, and I know that your will for our individual life will not be seen until we are living your will for everyone's life, until we're glorifying you, till we know you, till we worship you with our heart. Lord, I pray that you would search us and make us clean, that you would present to us a Holy Spirit that glorifies you, that you would make us trustworthy. God, that we would come to you humbly and that you would help us to see how you would have us worship you. God, help us to know your will for our lives, that we would be willing to respond in obedience today and every day. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray.